Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Cal Beachy, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, where he started skating in the late 80s. He moved to Chicago in 2003 and spent the next 20 years there teaching creative writing at the School of the Art Institute and Roosevelt University. Aside from his teaching, he published his first two books, the novel The Slide in 2009 and the collection of essays The Most Fun Thing in 2021. He's also one of the founders and co-hosts of the Venn City podcast, which started in 2019. In 2023, Kyle and his wife Kristen relocated to New Mexico to embark on a new journey. So here's my conversation with Kyle. I hope you'll enjoy it. in the late 70s so maybe 78 79 I'm not sure of the exact year and I know that you grew up in St. Louis in Missouri mm -hmm. and so you started skating in like 1986 which is I think a year after the first Back to the Future film came out so I guess we could say you're a, a Back to the Future kid or I a am. skater yeah <laughs> who are the two so who are the two Greg Hunt and um, Burnett both of them were right like I, that's that, those are sort of my peers I think in that in that yeah. regard which is which is a really good crew to be among. Um, yes. I think there were a lot of us who were very influenced by Marty McFly cruising around and somehow looking cool despite it all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's probably a bunch of other ones, maybe not among my guests, but uh, definitely there's a whole generation of skaters that have uh, you know, picked up a skateboard thanks to that movie. Yeah. And so I read also that you um, you moved to Pomona in California and you studied philosophy out there between like 97 and 2001, more or less. That's right. And then eventually you moved to Chicago in 03, I think, to pursue your studies, but not in philosophy. You did a, an MFA, Master of Fine Arts, at the School of the Arts Institute of Chicago. Yeah, that's right. So you did that for two years, between 03 and 05, and eventually you actually got a position at that same school, at the School of the Arts Institute. Mm -hmm. And you started that in 05 and all the way until 2010. The job position was adjunct faculty, if yeah, I understood correctly. Yeah. And so you were teaching writing and creative writing. So and during that period, you were also writing your first book, a novel called The Slide. So that one was, uh, I think, a work of fiction. It wasn't essays. Yeah, that's right. And so in 2010, you actually started working at the Roosevelt University in Chicago as an associate professor of English and creative writing. And you did that for 13 years until January 2023. I'm kind of going through this very quickly again. Uh <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's not the most interesting story, but you, so it's good to move quickly through it. So like the one thing I would stress there, though, is that um, associate is sort of the like peak position that I that I achieved as professor. You know, one of the things about being a college professor is that there are all of these ranks mm -hmm. um, and in order to jump ranks you essentially have to publish books and it you know have various hurdles for achievement it's a real kind of you know carrot and stick situation where they lure you deeper into the career by way of very very small pay raises but you know increased title so you okay. I started as a visiting writer and then I was assistant professor and then by the end I was an associate professor um, leaving only full professor on the horizon which you know we can talk about academia maybe at some point today yeah. but you know at a certain point the prospect of any sort of promotions becomes a little less and less of a kind of existential draw so 
So at a certain point, it, it got to be like, okay, now what? But yeah, that, that was it. Ro- Roosevelt was a very different school than the School of the Art Institute. And it was also, by the end, a very different school than the school that hired me in 2010. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, in Chicago, that was it. It was basically go there for school, find your way into a series of part-time positions. You know, you're kind of like a bounty hunter more than anything. You go in, you teach your class, you get out. And then if you're very, very fortunate, which I was, you find yourself a full-time position. So okay. that, that was a considerable stroke of good luck to fall into that position. Hmm. But yeah, I had that until we left last year in 2023. Right. Okay. And also I want to mention, uh, so recently you published that second novel that we were talking about, The Most Fun Thing, which uh, in this case is a collection of essays focused on skateboarding, but uh, not exclusively on skateboarding. It, it addresses uh, many, a range of topics. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one you wrote, I believe, in the course of 10 years, more or less, like between <laughs> 2011 and 2020. But I think actually half of it was written in the last six months or something like yeah. that. So yeah, it was a long project altogether, but uh, actually most of it was written in a short amount of time yeah and so that was published in 2021 i should also mention of course like most of the listeners tuning in will know you from the vent city podcast that started in 2019 and so i believe all the hosts are yourself ryan lay kristen ebeling ted schmitz ted barrow alex white and adam giacomundo adam his rap name is giacomundo to us he's adam um he's yeah an incredible asset an incredible addition to the cast he uh he has in some ways completed us yeah yeah (laughs) maybe we'll talk about podcasting as well but yeah that's a fun podcast that i love tuning in for and um yeah what else uh I think that's it. I think those are the big hits. The only thing I would add is that in that last year, actually in the same time that I left Roosevelt University, I also was very fortunate to start a a collaborative project with Alexis Sablone and Tina Post, who is faculty at the University of Chicago. And we got to teach a class at the University of Chicago, which was kind of like the icing on my Chicago experience to get to teach at such a, and we can talk about this also, but you know, like uh, it's very, one of the realities of being a, a professor is that there are, as I think I alluded to earlier, there are all of these kind of layers, mm-hmm. all of these levels. And, you know, at the top are the the sort of most elite and most prestigious schools. And so having spent the bulk of my career at a, a very small liberal arts school that struggled for money, but had an incredible mission at the core of it for, towards social justice, to be able to, at the end, and teach this class on skateboarding at the University of Chicago was just like a, a very stunning reality. So yeah. I just want that that sort of like final piece of the cake there at the end of the Chicago experience was being able to teach with two incredible colleagues at a really wonderful institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must have been awesome for sure. Yeah, it was good. And so, yeah, so let's get into the friends questions. Uh, let's see. Hey, Kyle, it's Indigo from Australia. My question to you is, if somebody was to make a film about your life and your memoir, who would you like to play you? Which actor? All right. (laughs) Thank you. Can't wait to hear the show. Um, That's a great question. Thank you, Indigo. Indigo rules. Um, I think most people know that by now. The funny thing that happens when you are selling a book is that one of the first things that a publisher does is like run it by whoever they have to see if it has any potential for being a film. Really? And oh, wow. with my first book, The Slide, there was there was some chatter. And in fact, I will never forgive John Hamm, the American actor from yep. Mad, Mad Men. Men. 
who came real, real close to optioning that and turning it into a film. And so he is forever on my shit list for not not <laughs> doing that. But, you know, with, with The Most Fun Thing, there was no threat at any point of it becoming a film. It was, it was very quickly, it became clear that, like, no, there was no interest in Hollywood whatsoever for this story. So it's a really uh, bizarre thought experiment. I mean, I don't know. What's the name of the kid who played Jay Adams in the, in the Terrible Z-Boys movie? Um, what is his name? Uh, I don't know. Some I, I'd sure. like someone who's uh like was a child actor who's grown up into a sort of awkward middle age, right? We haven't seen him in a while. He no longer has any star appeal. He's just sort <laughs> of vaguely familiar. That's that's who I'm looking that's for. <laughs> so yeah, someone who's already pretty much run the the full length of their acting career and finds themselves now kind of in a in a weird place. So yeah, that would be that would be my someone who you see on screen and just sort of vaguely vaguely recognize. Here's here's a thing that might be a theme going forward for however long we're talking today, <laughs> Quentin, is yep. that I don't have. I, I say it pretty clearly in the book that my memory is shit and that's always been the state of my life. But also as I've, I've achieved middle age, I've also like, it's gotten a lot worse. And the mm. worst thing for me is name recall. So oh, yeah. I will at some point in the next day or two, I'll remember the name of that actor, but <laughs> yeah. there will be a thousand times in the next hour where I try to come up with someone's name and I just don't get it. So apologies to Indigo, but I hope that, I hope that's a good, good enough. Yeah, yeah. Someone, someone we vaguely remember and don't really know or care why <laughs> that's a good answer i like it <laughs> great great it's funny that that thing you mentioned with memory because i don't have a good memory either but uh i have a good memory for names like i remember names of skaters i remember names of i don't know brands or I, uh, anything associated to skating i have a pretty good memory for are you are you good at it is, is it because you associate them with images like is it that i know this guy's name because i can think of or i know this person's name because i can think of a clip a, a particular photo like what is it do you think that works for you in, in skating because i think a lot of people are very good with skater names yeah. i had to this morning go and remind myself of ethan fowler's name you know <laughs> i was thinking yeah. like hey who is that guy who said the really incredibly racist things into benny fairfax's ear like oh ethan fucking fowler so um <laughs> I, i'm always impressed with skater who are very good at it and I always have to kind of defer yeah I don't know what's driving my uh, memory if it's uh, audio or, or video or images or but I think it's very selective like I have good memory for skating I have good memory for uh, movies like I'll remember mm. names of actors directors really easily because I love cinema yeah but that's pretty much it like you ask me about anything else like my memory is really <laughs> shitty so, so it's very very selective but uh yeah yeah, yeah. well thank god we all have these phones in our pockets you yes know? we could yes. just that that's no part, part of the problem maybe it's we rely on yeah. it so much that we we never need to remember anything but <laughs> yeah i think so i think so All right, so let's do the next one. So this one is from, so I'm going to butcher his name and I'm very sorry, but I think it's Dan Picard. Ah, uh, one of the best, one of, uh, one of the world's great dudes. Yeah, Dan Picard, as in Captain Jean-Luc Picard from the Starship Enterprise. Spelled different, but <laughs> very similar spiritually in their hearts. Cool. And uh, yeah, so he's, uh, I think, uh, a friend from Chicago, right? Yeah, good, dear friend. Hey, Kyle. Dan here. Well, look, we all know that Kyle is an accomplished writer and determined skateboarder. And it's well known that as a pool player, he can often hold the table at a busy bar late into the evening. It's even been muttered around Wrigleyville 
that for a Cardinals fan, he's not so much of a son of a bitch. So it's not <laughs> worth asking about these things. So my question for him is this. As a member and staunch advocate of the Art Institute of Chicago, if you could heist one piece of artwork from the museum and hang it in your future home, what would it be and why? That's a great question. I, I, I want to say one thing. Everything Dan says is true. I'm a very good pool player. I challenge <laughs> anyone ever to a game of pool. But more to the point, Dan Picard has one of the, the like best and most pure flicks and mm-hmm. his goofy-footed kickflip of anyone I've ever known. And I miss him in Chicago more than, more than I, I expected to. So it's wonderful <laughs> to hear his voice. There is, a, there is a work by Max Ernst in the Art Institute of Chicago that I would always make a point to kind of make a destination and find my way to. Um, the great thing about having a, subs- uh, a subscription, a membership to mm-hmm. a museum like the Art Institute of Chicago is that it sort of it demystifies and it makes less special a trip to the museum so you can just kind of make it routine. Yeah. You know, you can pop in for 20 minutes or, you know, spend an hour there, spend two hours there. Um, it's an incredible museum. It's, it was central to my life in Chicago. But there is there is a particular Max Ernst, and it's like a mixed media. I don't know that, the, of course, like I don't know any actors. Name. I can't remember the title of it. But it, mm-hmm. um, at some point in his career, um, Ernst came up with these figures, these like little bird figures. Um, and so it's just a very rudimentary image, like essentially a stick figure drawn of this character and his little bird friend. And I remember it was always in the same place in the museum in the modern wing and I would find my way there. And then one morning I went there and they had taken it out and replaced it by a Duchamp ready-made. And it was like a coat hanger that was hanging where my favorite piece of art used to be. And I was just livid. Like I wanted to just like tear this coat hanger off the wall and run down and and just like berate whoever I could find. Uh, But, you know, that, that would be it. If I can get my hands on that Max Ernst painting that was always behind a glass case. Yeah, I wouldn't leave it. I would sit there and stare at it for the rest of my life. <laughs> cool. Great question, Dan. Thank you. All right. So the next one is from Patrick Kigongo from the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. That's right. So he said, you've been gifted a 1993 Honda Civic hatchback. It's got a six CD changer. What six 90s hip hop CDs do you need on deck while you're behind the wheel? Yeah, great question. Um, hopefully it's the, the cartridge, six disc, you know, that you plug in maybe in the trunk. Um, that's a great question. I did have a 1993 Tahitian Green Honda Civic with two 12-inch JBL subwoofers in the back, and it boomed so loud. It was so obnoxious. Here are the CDs mm-hmm. if I could try mm-hmm. without thinking too much about it. Compton's Most Wanted Music to Drive By, The Infamous by Mob Deep, one of two of the Diggable Planet albums probably blow out comb because um, I think it's a little richer and a little more nuanced in it. I was saying to my wife the other day, man, this is this was the first time I heard of Karl Marx. This was the first time I heard of Angela Davis. Like that album introduced me to a whole lot of writing and culture that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? Compton's Most Wanted, Mob Deep, Diggable Planets. Oh, there'd be one Hyro album, so mm-hmm. it'd probably be it would either be No Need for Alarm or Souls of Mischief, ninety-three till infinity. It'd be one of those two. Oh, there'd be a Wu Tang album, which one? I don't know. Probably Liquid Swords if I can go that late. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise it would be either the original either, you know, uh Thirty Six Thirty Six Chambers, Chambers yep. mm-hmm. or it would be the ODB album, which like was oh, yeah. sneakily that first ODB album was sneakily one of that song Snakes was like untouchable. Who am I missing? I need someone 
I need, oh, the first Common Sense album. Oh, I'm sorry, not the first Common Sense album, but Resurrection, the second Common Sense album, not Can I Borrow a Dollar. Resurrection by Common Sense, Final Answer, those are my six. I, I, I like pool. I challenge anyone to give me six better. Six better <laughs> cool. Great question. Thank yeah. you, Patrick. All right. Let's see. This one is another audio one. Kyle, it's Cole. Hello. I have two questions for you. I think they're kind of related. Feel free to answer one or both. Do whatever feels right. It is your pod. So what role does writing play in the, for lack of a better term, skateboarding media landscape? And what do we get out of writing about skateboarding seriously? God, I love his voice. I love Cole's voice. <laughs> he has a cool voice, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. I've had a couple phone calls with Cole, and they're both just treats. Um, that's a great question. I, You know, I think, so the two questions are basically, why do we do it? Like, what, what does one get out of writing about skateboarding? And secondly, like, what does skateboarding get out of people writing about skateboarding? Mm. And I don't know which of those is easier to answer. I think I could say, I'll start personally by saying that, you know, I think... For most people for whom writing becomes a serious practice, the reason it becomes a serious practice is because there's a nature of thought that we can't access unless we do it by way of that procedure, that activity of writing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's one thing to sit, you know, cross-legged in a chair and stare off in the distance and, and consider a thing, but it's, it's a very different thing to try to put words to it and not just words, but, you know, make sense of it. Like, yeah. you know, the, the the real thing that writing is, it's not just labeling things, it's developing relationships, right? Like what a sentence is, is a kind of relationship. Sure. This noun has this sort of action, this cause has this sort of effect, because of this thing that has happened, therefore this other thing has happened, right? And so mm -hmm. when you are when you are making sentences, you know, when you are communicating, like we are right now, what we are doing are making claims about the world, we are making arguments. And that argument can be as simple as, I think this thing is more interesting than that thing. I think Common Sense's second album is one I would want to listen to more than his first album. Like, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're voicing preferences. We're finding, even by the end of the sentence, we find that we have landed on a preference or a belief that we might not have known at the outset of that sentence, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. the beauty of conversation. That's It's why we have to be in, in the presence of each other and having beers and talking and, and having no goal having it be open-ended allowing ourselves to meander through whatever points you know the following sentence might lead us to mm -hmm. right there are associative movements there are associations and you can't discover those steps along the way unless you begin the journey so mm -hmm. in that sense writing is the only way to get to certain beliefs to discover what you believe right mm -hmm. and the you know the great thing about writing the most fun thing and working in nonfiction is that Nonfiction allows you to show that work. Nonfiction encourages you to not know where a point is going to go. It encourages you to explore and to, to circle around a thing and make little jabs at the thing and hope that by the end, you've maybe achieved some kind of holistic portrait of what that thing is. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's always about an attempt. It's always about taking a stab at it. And, you know, that's, that's the beauty of the essay, what the essay is. It's let me give this a shot. Mm -hmm. And often what that leads to is that str you, you foreground that struggle, you show your work, 
you end up with a piece of writing that doesn't just display knowledge, but actually, you know, embodies how it comes to be. Mm -hmm. And mystery and frustration and failure and all of these things. They're part of the essay, which is maybe a really roundabout backdoor way of getting to the answer to the second question, which is like skateboarding benefits any time it... <laughs> I think skateboarding becomes more interesting. Skateboarding culture becomes more interesting the better idea we have of what skateboarding is. And I think one of the great, you know, bottomless pits of skateboarding culture is the fact that many of us don't know what skateboarding is. Mm -hmm. Many of us don't care what skateboarding is, right? And I think rightly so. I think there are a lot of people who will just straight up say like, you're taking this too seriously. There is no need to go into it at this length. Just enjoy yourself and have fun on a skateboard. And mm -hmm. to, in a very important way, they are exactly right. There are those of us who, who wonder, like, what is this thing? What is, wh why have I, why do I continue to give my well-being and my health and uh, my shins and my elbows and my bank account? Why do I continue to pursue this series of activities and injuries and heartbreaks? And boy, wouldn't it have been cool if I had been around for my son and his, you know, his, <laughs> his little league games instead of going out and meeting my buddies to ride skateboards every afternoon? Afternoon. You know, like yeah. there are sacrifices we make in order to pursue skateboarding. And I think anytime you're making a sacrifice for a thing, it, it sure helps if you understand something of why. Mm. Um, and that could be what what is the thing I'm sacrificing for? Or what is it about me that requires this? So back up a step. I think skateboarding benefits anytime we do a little better to frame it. Like, mm. what is this? And a lot of times that just means comparison. Skateboarding is like dance. Skateboarding is like jazz. Skateboarding is like yoga in some key mm -hmm. ways. Skateboarding yep. is like going out. Is it like snowboarding? Well, in these ways it is. But it, importantly, in these ways, it's very different, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that we come to understand anything often is by comparison. Yeah. Metaphor and analogy. That's the work that we do. And so... You know, I think I think it could be argued and there are certainly those who are very vocal about this, about saying like, hey, this is not doing any good for skateboarding, taking it this seriously. You know, we, we have one of these writers in the world. We sure don't need two of them. Um, <laughs> and I think that's the, the wrongest thing I've ever read. Like, I think skateboarding is a special enough thing that it deserves all of the attention that we could possibly pay it. I think sure. there's something very, very magical about what skateboarding in it is. And I think you know, maybe to frame it in terms of Cole's original question, and this will wrap it up. Mm -hmm. I think what skateboarding culture benefits from are everyone having their own relationship to it and yeah. pursuing that relationship as far as it can go, you know, yeah, and if, yeah. if, if as far as it can go is I like this, I, I like doing it, I'll do it for a few years and then I'll move on. Then so be it. That's, that's what it is. But mm -hmm. for those of us who are like, gosh, I sure have given a whole lot of my life to this thing. I think we owe it to that thing. Thing to consider why and consider what it's given us yeah 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 absolutely i don't remember where i saw this maybe in the free skate mag interview you gave um with um will Harmon and uh nick from the palomino a few years back when you uh, released the book i think you mentioned in that interview that as you were working on the most fun thing you were also working on a um a non uh no a fiction like a novel about skateboarding yeah, a novel proper yes yeah, yes yeah 
And uh, earlier in your answer to this question, you were saying that, well, if I understood correctly, that basically essays kind of offered a freedom that mm -hmm. fiction maybe doesn't offer as much or differently, perhaps. And yeah, I was just curious about this novel that you were working on and how was it working on that compared to the most fun thing. And in that interview, you were saying that at one point it seemed like it was a struggle to work on the novel. <laughs> and so you, it was at least becoming difficult. Yeah. And so for a little bit, you focused on the most fun thing and to uh, see skateboarding with that lens or to write like in that kind of frame, it made it uh, easier for you. And so, yeah. yeah, but what are your thoughts on that like now? Well, I, yeah, I mean, now I feel a like profound kind of cosmic re relief that the work that I did along the way, starting writing these essays, and then, as you said, that sort of sprint in the last six months, I feel very good that that work turned into a book that is the most fun thing. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the, the easiest way to get into this is to say that there are people who are really good storytellers in the world, right? And skateboarding has a lot of them, right? Yeah. Like if you've sat down with Jim Thibault or you, you sit down, I mean, Ted Barrow is an exceptional yeah. storyteller. Yes. Like everyone knows someone who's a great storyteller. Mm. Um, I am not that. Like I've never been a good storyteller. I don't, I don't have that sort of instinctual sense of movement, of escalation, of, you know, a lot of it's like telling a joke. It requires really good timing. Mm. Um, I tend to be a kind of person who gets much more thought, like caught up in the weeds of a thing, like the caveats, the, mm. the tangents, the sort of loops that, well, let me go and do this thing and then we'll return to the original story or like, oh, one thing I forgot to tell you was that this person has, you know, bright blue hair or like, you know, yeah. like my instincts as a storyteller are, are not very good, nor am I a particularly creative person. You know, it's, I'm not someone who is hit by inspiration in the middle of the night. I'm like, aha, I've got it. This will be the <laughs> best science fiction story ever told. Like I, that is not my relationship to writing. My relationship mm -hmm. to writing starts with language and then gets very quickly into the stuff we were talking about earlier in terms of sentences. Like I really think the sentence is one of the most incredible technologies mankind has ever come up with. I think it is limitless. I think it yeah. is a mystical kind of like wizard's wand that we have to make meaning out of all of these different pieces in all of these different shapes with all of this rhythm and sonic quality and so on. Mm -hmm. So in a typically very long answer, what I'll say is that like, I'm just not a good storyteller, you know, like Walker Ryan, who yep. sounds like he's just finished his third novel is a good storyteller. He get, he writes the story. Yeah, he does yeah. not find himself in the middle of a scene considering the, you know, existential complications of his character's footwear. Yeah. You know, yeah, he just yeah, doesn't yeah. do that. I am a person who does that. Like I am a person for whom getting into a novel is a really radical commitment and very much for me a process of sort of putting blinders on myself and restricting things and narrowing them. Mm. Um, and I'm just not very good at it, right? Like okay. I have developed a pretty good relationship with the first book I wrote when I was a much younger person and I continue to work on novels this morning. Um, mm -hmm. It is what I also like and maybe this gets into a skateboarding parallel, like I'm also just really, it's all I want to do. You know, all I want to do is write novels. All I want to do is skateboard. Mm. I'm not particularly good at either of those things. And yet I keep wanting to do them. And so, mm -hmm. you know, what the most fun thing gave me was a kind of release for all of the stuff that it turned out 
what did come a lot easier to me. It was easier to me to write essays. Mm. It's easier to me to think about the sort of philosophical underpinnings of footwear than it is to create a character and move that character from a beginning to a middle to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, maybe, you know, the, the thing I would stress is that I, I, it's all I want to do. Like, I still do it. And it's the work I do every day. And it brings me tremendous satisfaction while at the same time also making me constantly feel like I'm failing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was listening the other day to this interview. You, you did a podcast with, um, I didn't write it down, but it was, uh, I think, the Roosevelt University podcast um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago to talk about the most fun thing. And uh, I think at some point in your conversation with the person who was interviewing you, you said um, you were talking about writing habits or like developing a writing routine kind of. And I think mm. you mentioned that you usually, at, at least at that time, I don't know about today, but that you would usually write a couple hours in the morning, like you would wake up pretty early like around yeah. 6 six thirty, and then write for a couple hours and then get on with your day and do all the other stuff you need to do and sometimes in the evenings or maybe most evenings you would write for an extra hour yeah and so is that something you try to stick to every day or how do you approach writing and because like i don't write myself but yeah. the only thing i could relate it to is kind of like exercising like i, I go running and i remember yeah. at, maybe at some point in the in the the most fun thing you you mentioned that you didn't like running or something and uh i thought <laughs> no, it was funny i don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I love it personally, but, uh, and yeah, and so I try to do it every couple days and that's kind of the only thing that I do very regularly. And so, yeah, how do you approach writing today and do you try to keep a very strict kind of daily routine uh, of writing? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think the, the simplest answer is that I, I find a real balance between like any ritual, right, is the balance of the sort of rigid expectation and pattern of behavior, right? You do the thing. And by doing the thing every day, you develop a new relationship to that thing, right? I mean, mm. that's, that's essentially what Tao is, right? Like, that's, that's the idea you you get in and you do the thing. And even if you don't know why you're doing the thing, and even if it, it doesn't feel like the thing is accomplishing anything, the sort of meta level of having a practice that you devote yourself to yes. is itself enough to make the products kind of irrelevant, like the doing is the thing. Yes. Um, so I, I believe that I believe that the doing is the thing. I also have, as I've gotten older, really broadened my definition of what counts as writing. Okay. You know, if it were, you know, there are times I put myself on a word count where I say every day, I'm going to get 500 words done. And if I'm not doing that, then I have to come back to the computer to make sure I get 500 words mm. done in a given day. Recently, it's been less of that. Recently, it's what writing means to me and what I do in the morning, which I do continue to have my sort of schedule of getting up at 5.30 or 6 or whatever and yep. making tea and coming and sitting. And, you know, the great thing in New Mexico is that the sunrises are as amazing as the sunset. So you sit here and you read your book and you drink your little cheap English breakfast tea. <laughs> and the sky is suddenly just this outrageous color of pink. And it lasts about, you know, maybe 60 or 70 seconds and then it's gone. Um mm. So, you know, there are all sorts of rewards for doing it. But yeah. my, my point is that, like, I don't have to be writing all the time. Um, I could be jotting myself notes. I could be sitting with a manuscript that I'm editing. I could be just reading, you know, I'm reading this John Berger novel right now called The Wedding. And it's just okay. the most lyrical and beautiful book I've read in years. And I'm just savoring it. And so I spend to spend an hour with a few pages of that book and really get in there and think about what he's doing. Like, what is that if not writing? You yeah, know, that's, yeah, yeah. 
I guess it's reading technically, but really what I'm doing is thinking about writing. So yeah, I do continue to have morning practices. I do continue to feel best about the days when I can come back and do more at some point later. And, you know, a lot of the sort of reason for me for leaving teaching as a full-time profession is that it just, it didn't allow for that. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality is you are always thinking about your students and you're always, you are always beholden to their growth and their work becoming better. And I just didn't allow me the sort of selfishness that one requires in order to really give one's own work the attention it needs. Yeah, but like you still managed to put out the most fun thing, uh, despite mm-hmm. having this full time job. So yeah, it looks like it yeah. didn't. Quite, yeah, but uh, if you if you ever t- no no writer is content with their output. You know, no, n- there's always more we should be doing. You know, like yeah. I see that Cole, Cole, for instance, who asked this wonderful question, yep. um, has a second book of essays coming out this spring, yep, um, yep. and I'm ecstatic. But there is a part of me who's like, you fucker, like when did, wh- <laughs> how in the world did you do that, you know? Yeah, and yeah. I know the answer. I know that, you know, I hope his boss doesn't hear that, but I know he has a day job that he can kind of sneak in some work during and so on. And it's, okay. you know, that all of us are just looking for the way to find the best balance with our particular situation. And the challenge is, of course, that that situation is changing all the time. Yeah, and yeah. so you're always adapting. You're always finding ways to get the work done. You know, the the people I know who raise kids and write books are just like, it boggles them. I have no idea. How yeah. They so, yeah. but, but they do. I mean, like to your point, they do. We, you get it done. If it's important enough, you find, you find a way to do it and you, you adjust your own sort of practice to the shape of your life. All right. So let's do the next question. Hey, Kyle, it's John, and here's my question. If skateboarding <laughs> went away tomorrow and you couldn't do it, think about it, write about it, whatever, what new interest or activity or hobby do you think that you would pick up to fill that void? Thanks. Uh, that's, that's a great question. And, and a question that everyone who approaches their late 40s and into their 50s, I mean, every, you're, you're answering this question all the time, right? And I, you know, the answer I give in the book is basically just like cold terror, you know, it's just like frigid, paralyzing terror mm. of what happens when this thing is taken away from your life. I've adjusted by being in New Mexico to skating, having a very different, like being a different part of my life. Um, Mm. and so I can, I can kind of see how a life could, (laughs) a life could be without it. I mean, I guess the biggest question for me, and this isn't what John asked is, would I still watch it? Mm. You know, like, would I, would I still consume it or would that be too hard? Like, I know that after I left Chicago, I couldn't, there was a new deep dish video that came out right after I moved away. I just couldn't, I just straight up couldn't watch it. I was like, this is going to make me incredibly sad. This is going to make me feel a giant hole in my chest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess that would be the question in terms of what I would do. I would probably... I mean, physically, I would, I would find something, you know, I bike if I, if I'm physically able, I would get more into biking and hiking and doing that sort of stuff. But, you know, the sort of corollary of his conversation of this question is that like, well, maybe there's a physical reason you can't do this, right? Maybe, Mm. maybe the sort of physical health that you've taken for granted your whole life is gone. And now you can't, not only can you not do skateboarding, but you can't do these other things. Mm -hmm. I think the next hardest thing for me to pursue forever would probably be trying to write poetry. I think Mm -hmm. poetry, the only way that I can understand poetry is through understanding skateboarding. And sometimes I feel like the only way I can understand skateboarding is through what I understand of poetry. So I would imagine I would probably get really like, you know, like smoking pipe (laughs) and like velour robe. I would just (laughs) sit inside and and read poems all day long um, and try to write them. 
Man, you dug for the homies. This is great, by the way. I did not expect John or Dan, frankly, to be part yes. of this, so I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> thrilled. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I was helped by uh, by someone. You'll, you'll figure it out later. Oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> so that was John Matson, right? Yeah, my college roommate, my first year roommate. We uh, we arrived, and like a lot of first year roommates, weren't quite sure what to think of the other. <laughs> and I remember him asking me. Speaking of '90s music, I remember him like we had a phone call before we got together. We like got you know to be like, well, what are you going to bring? I'll bring a mini fridge. You bring this or whatever. And he was like, well, to get to know each other, like, what was the last CD you bought? And I answered honestly, and the last CD I had bought was Sean Puffy Combs album. Okay, and I was like, well, it was Puffy's album, and it was just like dead silence on, on, on the <laughs> other end. not going like, to work out. Or... <laughs> he's like, oh, you know, John John grew up listening to Pavement and, you know, et cetera. And so for me to be like, well, the Puffy album. Um, and somehow we made it work. So, he got uh, very worried for a second. <laughs> yeah, terrified. And then, then he ended up being completely in love with the All About the Benjamins. The greatest track on that album by far is the All About the Benjamins track with that incredible Biggie verse. So we found a common ground. If we can do it, anyone can do it all right let's do the next one hey gal question for you how has nonfiction writing informed the way you approach or maybe approaching your writing currently whether that's fiction or nonfiction, or even planning workshops or planning events how has you know diving into nonfiction and producing a book after writing a novel how has that kind of impacted all your writing and all your events moving forward Secondly, how does it feel to no longer have students? I'm really curious, like after years of having that immediate call and response between professor and student, what happens with a professor's kind of like mental time and like, where does that energy go? Curious your thoughts. Thanks so much. Those are great questions. I, I'll try to answer these fairly quickly. Uh, the, the first one I think can be answered kind of quickly, which is just that I think any any time that you want to do a thing and get better at a thing, a real good idea would be to do that thing's opposite. You know, I mean, mm. what what nonfiction writing made me more aware of is what fiction writing is like. It just by doing the things opposite, you come to see what the inverse is. Yeah, and so yeah. I understand I understand fiction a lot better now. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is just, you know, like they have different jobs. They should have different jobs. You know, my problem in the past was that my fiction would get too essayistic or it would get too nonfiction. And so I think coming back to writing fiction after spending so much time on those essays reminded me like, oh, what? you're doing here is telling a story so tell like tell the story stop doing this other shit and just tell the story yeah as far as the question about students i'm it's hard there are students i care about deeply you know former students i've had um the great thing is that those relationships it's a really magical thing you know like i i had one of my former professors was out here Mm -hmm. she was doing some writing of her own and we met up and i was able to hang out with her and her husband um and this is a person who was a teacher of mine in grad school and you know at this point I certainly don't think of her as my teacher and she probably doesn't think of me as her student. Um, Mm. We're not that far apart in age. We've spent much more time as friends than as anything else that we ever were. But there is, there is that sort of vestige. There is that sort of core of the teacher student relationship that'll never go away. Sure. So, you know, I, I am lucky that I have a few students with whom I have that relationship. I, I was a pretty private 
teacher. I wasn't always available. You know, I made pretty clear like, hey, look, part of what it means to be a writer is is to have some boundaries on your life. And as such, I need to have my own boundaries so that I can do my work even as I'm a teacher. Mm. Um, and, you know, to the detriment of my, I think, effectiveness as a professor, I think for me, it became really hard to reconcile what is required of a really good professor and the things I know I needed to do. And so like really one of the main reasons I got out of teaching was I felt myself like, oh, I'm going to be a bad teacher. Like I'm going to, I'm going to start phoning it in. You see how it happens. You can sort of feel it happening. And you think like, God, if I'm still teaching this class in 20 years, I'm going to be like completely checked out. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be that. Mm. I miss having students. This is not the most honorable answer, but I'm a, I'm a pretty vain person. You know, I really like, I really like having people's attention. I really like looking out and seeing that people are listening to me. Mm -hmm. I really like believing that the work I've done to prepare a lecture is being sort of reflected back at me with them taking notes or asking questions or having discussion, however it goes. Mm -hmm. And I also really miss the sort of labor that was required to put together a three hour class, you know, like, and at the same time, I don't at all. Like at the <laughs> same time, I'm so ecstatic to never have to do that. You know, when you're a teacher, you are always thinking about your students. I've said that a few yeah, times yeah, now. Yeah. It's, it's completely true. So yeah, I, I miss my students. I trust though, that the ones that I, I formed a relationship with will continue to have some nature of relationship going forward in the future. And if yeah. not, you know, if they don't need me, if there's nothing I can do for them, then, you know, I don't, I don't think we need to have a relationship. No, no, for sure. Sense. You know, I mean, if I, if I gave them something and they can now go off and not need me anymore, then that's actually kind of ideal. <laughs> so I don't know. It's complicated. It's a good question because it's complicated. Um, I know that I have felt the loss in my life of being a professor, like, in terms of my identity, to yeah. not be a professor anymore continues to be a weird yeah. thing. I interviewed uh, John Rashray recently. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about retiring from pro skating. Yeah, it's a process because you're kind of giving up on a part of your life. Like, even if you still skate, you're not a pro skater anymore. So you're, you're like kind of giving up an identity that you've built for yourself. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess that's a parallel I could make with you becoming an assistant professor. Yeah. No, associate professor. Sorry. Yeah, but that that doesn't really matter. I mean, your your point is is a bigger one and an important one, which is like, where does identity come from? You know, and mm -hmm. a lot of the questions of what the most fun thing is trying to do is, you know, what is it? What is it to call to be a skater? You yeah. know, the the great perfect answer, the Ted Schmidt's answer, is that I don't know if it's ten days or two weeks, but I think it's. If you haven't skated in two weeks, you're not a skater anymore. You're just not a skater. <laughs> you can get it back, though, very quickly by just going out and riding a skateboard. But, you know, like the the sort of core of that humor is that like what makes a skater? What yeah. what makes an artist? What makes a professor? What what makes a father? You know, like all of these sort of vague categories that we have that even though they're completely vague and undefined, I mean, we could say here's what a father is. But really, it's not just having a kid. It's performing these responsibilities. It's mm. being there when the kid needs you. It's in having some relationship if that the person is around with the mother of the child or the partner in raising the child, right? Mm -hmm. It's all of these inchoate and, you know, really hard to define kind of qualities. And so, you know, again, back to the earlier point, when you find those things gone, it would seem to me the best thing to do would be able to name like, well, what is gone? Like, what is the thing that's gone? And yeah. it's not identity that's gone. It's identity as a skater. Yeah. It's identity 
as a professor. And so then it's like, okay, well, what did I, what was it? What did I get? And so when I say like, oh, I'm kind of vain and I really like, I really got a kick out of my students' attention. Like that's something I had to admit to myself. Mm. And it seems important to be honest about that and say like, there was this sort of constant feedback of being told that the words that I'm saying have some sort of meaning to someone else. Like that's a hard thing to lose. Yeah, yeah, And I would imagine for John also, it's led to some very serious questions about like, well, what, what was skateboarding to me? And I think in John's case, and not to go on too much of a tangent, but like for John, what we've seen is an incredible dedication to helping people with mental health challenges, helping people who find themselves in suicidal states, like finding ways to use skateboarding. And so, you know, it seems like one of the things John realized in his, and I don't, you know, I know John a tiny little bit. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed every interaction I've had with him, but I would imagine that one of the things John realized that he got out of skateboarding is now what he's funneling into this other thing. So to get back to the earlier question, well, what is the point of writing or thinking about skateboarding? Part of it, it can just be simply to know your relationship to it so that when you don't have that relationship, you can find it somewhere else. All right, so let's uh, do the next one. This one is from Ian Borden. Great. What an honor. I'm sorry, before he asks his question, let's just please, can we call him like the godfather of all thoughtful skateboard writing, Ian Borden? He sure is. I mean, what an absolute legend. Okay, please go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so he asked, what do skateboarding and writing share in terms of the creative impulse? I think that's a great question. Um, I'll maybe answer it by going back to a thing I said earlier, which mm-hmm. is that I'm not a particularly creative person. I would say when I was at the Art Institute that I was the least creative person at that whole art college, and I don't think <laughs> it was super wrong. Um, I also don't think I'm a particularly creative skater. You know, like I don't, I don't see a spot's possibilities in the way. I have a friend named Jesse Ward, who's one of these people who everyone, everyone in America sort of has two degrees of separation from Jesse Ward, this guy who grew <laughs> up in Michigan and lived in Chicago for a while and now is in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He's a great skater. He's an incredibly sweet and thoughtful and sincere person. He's very creative, but like everyone somehow knows Jesse Ward. Mm. Um, But in any case, Jesse is one of the most creative skaters that I know. Likewise, there's a guy named Scott Gall, who's just another kind of legend of the Midwest who finds his way around. And like, these are people who I think of when I think of creative skaters. They mm-hmm. they see a spot and they, they manipulate the spot and their body and their board in creative ways. I don't do that. And part of that is because I have a limited repertoire, like the here are my tricks. And, you know, at a certain point, that's it. This is what I have to work with. Mm. Um, Part of it is just that like the nature of questions that I ask are, you know, the nature of things that I bring to an existent thing, whether that be a ledge or that be a subject matter that I'm thinking about for an essay. Like I find that my sort of strength is more in like sort of sheer fortitude of really just like knuckling down and getting into it Mm -hmm. more than it's in what is a creative way to come about this? What is a creative approach to this? Um, Mm. And I I don't think this is what Ian was asking, but it's, it's impossible for me to answer this question without like focusing on the fact that not everyone who writes is super creative not everyone who skates is super creative um but those who are bring something different to it but those of us who aren't i think can bring something else you know whether that's just like stubbornness Mm. or work ethic or you know our limited bag of tricks maybe that's it um 
So I think, you know, the impulse behind Ian's question is a good one, which is that they're similar. Mm. They're very similar. I do approach skating the same way I approach writing. And I wish sometimes that it was a lot more creative. And, and I'm very grateful to those who are creative, either as writers or as skaters, to just be around them and kind of absorb that energy a little bit. Because it does feel to me like a totally different project. Like skating with Scott Gall or skating with Jesse Ward is not the same as, as skating with me. It's just not the same thing. Yeah. It's interesting because like creativity is, uh, I mean, it's uh, very subjective or like just uh, hard to define. Like when I when yeah. I think of creative skating, I'll, I'm thinking of people like uh, Albert Nyberg, this guy who skates for Sour, yeah. or like Chris Haslam, or of course, Rodney Mullen back in the day. People who yeah. skated differently, who have a large bag of tricks maybe. But uh, then you can also consider Leo Vals as a very creative skater. His bag of tricks isn't necessarily as impressive, but right. his His approach of spots and the tricks he decides to do them how he films them this is all very creative and so i guess yeah everybody's creative in their own way and uh probably goes the same way with uh, writing yeah But yeah the, i guess the creative impulse would be like how do you like when you skate or when you decide to sit down and write like you do in the morning what's that little little thing that gets you started or like when you go to skate a ditch or something like okay what what do i do do i do an ollie do i do an comply do i do i don't know whatever yeah like, Yeah, and I mean, the other thing we might want to add in here is the sort of reaching, like knowing your sort of milieu. Like I know Leo Valls as a skater, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think I do. I likewise at this point um, feel like I know Gustav as a skater. Like I have a sense of what he can do. But the thing that's best both in artwork and in skateboarding is like when someone surprises you, when someone operates suddenly outside of your expectation of them. That's when you make a sound at the screen. Like that's mm, when you're watching yeah. Sour Solution two, and you're like, oh, fuck. like yeah, I had yeah. no idea, right? Like that. That's what it is. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. Yeah. And which isn't just purely creativity. You know, that I don't. I don't think that's quite the right word for it. Like w what it is, is like tapping into whatever you normally don't tap into or finding a weird kind of dark corner of whatever your reserves are and seeing like, well, what about that? Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I think you're right. I think you're right that like we don't have a definition for creativity and we probably shouldn't. But also, you know, we don't I don't quite know what that thing is that sort of what generates surprise. What is yeah. what is the the cause that leads to the effect that we call surprise? And I, I think it's it's like choices. Yeah. That's making me think of the chapter in um, The Most Fun Thing of um, about uh, Dylan, because you mm. mentioned in there that uh, you were really surprised and amazed by the Dylan Gravis part that Greg Hunt made with him back in 2010 or around there. Yeah. Because like at the time, as you explained in, in the essay, like uh, Dylan had this kind of image and was getting it. People were making fun of him or something like because he yeah. was he was a different kind of skater, like the clothing choices he made, whatever, like people were talking shit on him and stuff yeah and all of a sudden he comes out with this incredible part and um as you said like you watched it and even now like uh years later when you watch it again you're still like surprised and amazed and yeah of course greg hunt's editing must have played a bit <laughs> of a role you know in, in making this part so iconic but also mm -hmm. just because like people weren't expecting that incredible level of skating from dylan like uh his uh, alien workshop part wasn't that impressive or right. and so that part really came out of nowhere and really i think a lot of people were like Like yeah, that. yeah. And I think you're right. But I, I would say that there's even something like the surprise within the surprise, right? I mean, what, what really makes that part, I think, magical? And I think what makes 
you know, I've read the novels of the American author Don DeLillo. I've read all of those novels, Mm -hmm. all of his work. There's no book I haven't read three times, right? Like these are the works that I find to be continuously and regularly rewarding. There's always something new in them. Mm. Um, And I think there is a way that that Dylan part, you know, like he does that frontside tail slide on that ledge that runs downhill and the kickflip out. And every time you see, I mean, the first time you see him get onto that ledge, the first time you watch that part, you know, he's going to kickflip yeah right like you can tell and one of the most like depressing realities of skateboarding these days it seems to me is that you watch someone get onto a super slick ledge you watch them shuffle their feet and you're like here comes a varial heel flip and then it's like boom here's the varial heel flip and you think oh bully for you my dude like i knew what was coming i'm glad you can do that trick but it doesn't alight anything inside of me Mm, yeah with that dylan kickflip the first time you see it, you know it's going to be a kickflip. Every time thereafter, you know even more it's going to be a kickflip. But every single time, it's like, holy shit, that is a huge kickflip out of there. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but he stomps it in, in that way that is him. And so, like, mm-hmm. to be surprised by what you know is coming is the best thing in the world. Mm. To not be able to spoil a story. I want to be able to write a novel where I could tell you everything that happens and it doesn't matter. You know, I don't, I don't want to believe in spoilers. I don't want to think that a thing can be ruined. Mm -hmm. I think the greatest things we have are the things that we know what it is. And yet, despite knowing all that, we still feel ourselves this little jolt of like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Um, That's it. Like that, that to me is the goal. Kyle Beachy, my dear friend Kyle, I have a question for you. Um, With you and your own personal wife, Kristen, also being a professional writer, do the two of you fret over things like grocery lists and text messages? Do you have to make them witty and charming back and forth to each other? Is there a language that the two of you share that is uh, different from most couples? Love you. Um, that's Alex White, the unmistakable Alex White. One of, one of the greatest people skateboarding has brought me into contact with, which is a long list of (laughs) people I'm really happy to have met through skateboarding. Um, my wife is a poet and my wife is also a very, very like effective writer. In addition to being an incredibly lush and rich writer, she also is professionally very good at sitting down and being like, here's what the client doesn't even know they want yet. So let me give it to them. Um, so she's, she is a an absolute magician with language. Um, I think it shows up most for us when we're fighting. And, you know, I haven't been super shy about the fact that, like, our marriage has involved a lot of struggle. Um, And, you know, there are no two people you can put together for nine years and not have them disagree with each other. Uh, We fight very differently. We have very different moon and star signs, she would remind me. But what we both share is a real meticulousness with language. And so when one of us says a thing, you know, there will be a a phrase or there will just be a noun and it'll just it's like a record record stops where it'll be like, you think that about me? And we'll have to like back up and be like, wait, no, that's not the word I mean. 
you know, the challenge here is that emotion is conveyed by a lot of ways and a lot of them have nothing to do with language. Sure. Yeah. And so when all we have is language, when we are having serious conversations, often when we're having the conversation after the fight where we're kind of going through like, okay, what just happened? Mm -hmm. What can we take away from this? How could this have gone differently? How can we not fall into the patterns that we fall into? All of these things that people need to do in order to have prolonged relationships with each other. That's when language is really important. Mm. The challenging thing is when emotion dictates diction, right? Like when emotion is in charge of word choice, the listener can be like, how dare you use that word? Yeah. So I think for us, it's really, it comes through there. I think we send super good text messages. I think Kristen is one of the funniest people I've ever encountered in my life. And I feel just exceptionally lucky to be the primary receiver of her linguistic messages. It's really a joy because she's she's funny as shit like she's just <laughs> hilarious um and a lot of that you know starts with language and i like to think that i'm maybe the perfect audience for it so yeah <laughs> it's a good question and i think for the most part it enriches our lives more than anything all right let's do this next one hey kyle hope you're doing well i have a question for you first i like to think uh i'm contributing something to skateboarding at least here in my community and what i'm curious about or would like to learn how to do is reach a bigger audience it seems that you guys at slow impact and vent city and your book can draw quite a crowd and i was wondering how to scale this thing and maybe reach a larger audience myself all right you, you have to help me with who that was that was jason waters Oh, hell yeah. That's wonderful. I've never, I don't, that's great. This is, Jason is someone I've communicated with email so much. So Jason has written two books about his very particular, I, ho I hope this doesn't blow him out. Um, but Jason know. has written two books uh, about his relationship to skateboarding. Um, and he is a person who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yep. Um, I think fairly young. I think a lot of people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia happens in their early 20s. And he's someone who sounds like had a whole lot of talent, you know, like you watch him now and it's, he's one of these sort of grown-ups who you think like oh god like you know that sort of surprise is there where you're like whoa that's <laughs> that's fairly proper for a guy i don't know very well mm. um and so you know i think the answer is that you just really continue to do what you do i mean the hard the hard thing is that finding an audience these days has not almost zero like maybe pretty close to zero with having anything to do with the quality of the thing that you make i mean that's just the sheer reality of it right i mean it's it's more than anything it's access yeah. And I, you know, because Ryan Lay started our podcast um, and because he had a following and Ted Barrow had a following, you know, I was able, in a sense, to leverage their access to a listenership mm. um, as someone who has a much smaller following. And so now I have some of their audience. Mm -hmm. And that's that's purely by chance. That's because I happen to know these people. Yeah. Um, likewise, you know, I have a big New York publisher. Sometimes I wish I didn't, but because I have a big New York publisher, they printed, you know, they printed 14,000 copies of my book. Mm-hmm. And I haven't sold through all of those, but I, you know, they can pay for 14,000 copies of my book. They can pay me money for the manuscript. And these are all realities that 
authors who work for smaller presses, work with smaller presses or publish on their own, just don't have. Yeah. You know, like I had access to a giant budget for publicity. I don't think they used it well. I don't think really it could have been all that giant. I'm disappointed with how they've done it, but I had access to a publicity machine. Mm. Um, and so I guess the thing I want to stress is like so much of scaling, so much of reaching an audience, so much of finding an audience has nothing at all to do with the quality of the thing you're doing. And I think what Jason has done in writing his two books is write the most honest and truthful accounts of a, a situation that is exactly his own. Mm-hmm. And so I'm afraid I don't really have, I don't really have advice for that. You know, there are people who will, who do have that advice. Um, a lot of them are crooks and hucksters, but like, <laughs> you know, I, I would say that the rewarding thing is a lot less about the audience. You know, I mean, one of the things that I think most people who have audiences will tell you is that the audience itself isn't actually a reward. Mm. Um, you know, the, the reward is making the thing, yes, is doing yes. the thing and believing in the thing. It's nice you know, back to my students taking notes, it's sure nice when you look out and you know people are listening. And I, you know, I know that there have been times when I've felt my darkest as a writer and someone has reached out and been like, hey, this meant something to me. And that does carry you, right? Like, I don't mean to suggest that, oh, don't care. Just just try to do your best. Like, yeah, yeah. no, oh, it, course, it yeah. matters. We need it. We need that positive feedback. We yeah. need to know that there is someone who is doing the other half of the conversation, which is listening. Mm. But I don't, I don't know. I've yeah, been no really fucking lucky. I've been really, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've just been really lucky. And I mean, I think what you do is you align yourself as much as you can with like-minded people. Yeah. And, and just hope that whatever you're doing resonates enough. I would, you know, say personally to Jason, like, I think what you do personally is you keep telling your story because mm-hmm. your story is a really good one and an important one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I think his latest book, I don't know if it's the second one, but it's called Lightning Strikes Twice, A Skater's yeah, Journal of Life one. Beyond Schizophrenia. Yeah. That seems interesting. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll try to get my hands on that. Yeah, that one and the first the first one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, do what you can because they are. Shout out to Jason Waters for the work he puts in. All right, let's do the next one. Hey, Kyle. It's fellow former St. Louis resident Sam Corman. Um, I have a couple St. Louis questions for you. Um, the first is, who are your three favorite St. Louis skaters and why? And uh, the second question is, where is the best place to get ribs in St. Louis? Oh, geez. Great questions from Sam Corman. Um, <laughs> So let me just, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to kind of big up several skaters from St. Louis. If I had to choose my three favorite, Randy Placer is a dear homie. And I think one of the great talents to come out of St. Louis. And I think the industry did him kind of dirty as at the time the industry was doing a lot of people dirty who wouldn't commit to living in LA full time. Mm. I think if Randy were, I think if Randy emerged right now and had the talent that he had as a younger person, he would have a very different career. Mm -hmm. So Randy's up there, Joe Herbert is a friend of mine. Joe has final section in the St. Losers video. Mm-hmm. Joe is someone who I like personally looked up to a whole lot as a skater and someone who has since become like a really dear friend. He and I went on a camping trip in October because he drives he drives these Toyotas and he and his homies drive Land not Land Cruiser, Forerunners and Tacomas all over the desert and he allowed me to kind of hitch a ride with them and it was, it, you know, you, you can't spend 30 hours in a car with someone and not get into the 
the muck of what life is. So Joe, no. Randy Place or Joe Herbert. I mean, here's where things get really difficult. Jabari Pendleton is is the right answer. Like Jabari is just a singular skater, mm-hmm. right? Has been a possibility model to all sorts of skaters. Right? When he was bigger bodied, there were skaters who were large who were just like, whoa, who is this dude? He rules. Mm. As one of several skaters to leave St. Louis and go to San Francisco, he kind of carried St. Louis with him, which I think was really important, as did Jason Whistler and Brad Johnson, mm. like these guys who went out to San Francisco in the 90s and yep. made a name for themselves. Now there's a skater there named Levon Conklin who put out a part with Free last year. If you haven't watched that Levon part from last year, put it on immediately. It's beautiful. He's, I think, getting some hookup from Theories and Theories companies now. Okay. The brothers who make everything in St. Louis, Gabe Kehoe and Alex Kehoe, Gabe, you know, these are just the best dudes. What I do want to say, though, that there is a skate. Well, and then there's Tim Bruns, who skated for Hot Rod in the 90s and might have been the first person to kickflip back nose blunt, allege. I actually have an interview with Josh Kalis and Tim separately where I've kind of tried to pin down who did it first. Okay. And Tim Bruns has this amazing story about trying that trick on one of the USC ledges and trying it and trying it and going back and trying it and then the whole girl team shows up one day and like all get out of the van and they're sitting there putting together boards and so he just feels this motivation and he lands this you know what is i'm pretty sure one of the first kickflip back nose blunts on a ledge certainly on a proper ledge on not a curb um and it's in i think it's a hot rod industry section from one of the 411s okay um but there was a skater even less heralded and maybe more deserving than any of them which was a guy named jason sides Okay. who skated in the early 90s and was just like this savant from very deep southern Missouri, a town called Jackson, Missouri, mm-hmm. um, which is down near Cape Girardeau. It's down near the Arkansas border and the Tennessee border. It's it's in the cuts, man. It's like deep country. Okay. Um, he has a part in the 19, I think it's the 94 Gullwing video, which is called Revival. He has one of the first parts and he's doing almost the whole part is switch. Um, A good deal of the part is in his driveway and his mom is actually credited as a filmer. (laughs) But he he was basically along with Rodney Mullen doing switch 360 flips before anyone else. Oh, wow. So there's this guy in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, who just has switch 360 flips on lock and is doing them in this gall wing video to like switch 360 flip, no slide, you know, switch, no slide three or no slide 360 flip out. Like, mm. you know, like just all these combos switch 360 flips on steep banks, like was just an absolute technician. Yeah. Um, and that was it. And just like, that was his moment to shine. Um, so I'm into that, man. I'm into like those weird local legends. I'm in, I'm into the fact that there's a rumor that he might have invented the Switch 360 flip, even though we know that Rodney Mullen invented the Switch 360 flip. Like, yeah. God, if there's one thing I miss about our contemporary age is that we can't have rumor anymore. You know, nothing's yeah. a rumor. Everything is either confirmed or just like bullshit. There's no more mystery. Yeah, yeah. So Jason Sides for being that kind of legend. Um, as far as ribs go, yep. oh man, what's the name of the place on Olive Boulevard? I don't. I think it's called Cheney's. Cheney's Barbecue House. Yeah, I don't know. I this is this is where I lo- I'll, I'll look it up and I'll send it to Sam and we'll go there and we'll eat ribs. St. Louis ribs are famously among the like three. You know, the St. Louis cut famously is a fattier rib than other ribs. It's like it's got more fat on it. Okay, but you know, people in America really care. about about ribs and there are all these regional battles and Texans feel like they fucking own it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, They're wrong. You know, Missouri barbecue is really good. Kansas City has incredible barbecue. 
but St. Louis does not. They are no slouches themselves. Thanks, Sam. Great question. All right. So the next one is from uh, Wes Miller. Oh, great. I believe the editor of The Most Fun Thing. Yeah. And skater. And a yes, skater. And a skater as well. Yes, absolutely. So he didn't have a chance to record his question because he told me he just had a, a baby. And uh, <laughs> he's, uh, it was a little tricky to record sure. the question. But he said, what are you working on at the moment? How's the copywriting life treating you? And what was the thing that unlocked kickflip back tail for you a little while back? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll start with the kickflip back tail, which is that I didn't, I didn't unlock it. I don't, I did the first one of my life ever at a borough hall in New York. And it happened to be in front of Mark Suchu, who was there. Oh wow! And Mark Suchu, this son of a bitch says to me, that looked like someone who's never done a backside kickflip lucking into like the greatest moment of their life. And I was like, well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. So like, I have a really, um, my kick. So there's a chapter in the book about having a bad kickflip and I oh, have yeah, a yeah. bad kickflip. I have like a Mark Gonzalez kickflip. I have <laughs> a ma what we now really derogatorily call a mobbed kickflip, yeah. but mm -hmm. what really was just that's how you flipped a board when boards were really wide and didn't have any noses. Right, right. I just never learned how to do a proper kickflip. My kickflips are grotesque. My switch <laughs> flips are maybe a little more proper. Um, so the challenge there is that I can't really do good backside flips. And as such, I can't really kickflip back tail. Mm -hmm. So I didn't unlock them. I've lucked into maybe three of them in my life. One in front of a camera and two of them in front of like crowds of people. I'm so happy we're there to witness it. Yeah, yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, I never have to try ever again in my life. Uh, <laughs> What were the, oh, what am I working on now? Um, yep. I'm working on a, no, I have a draft of a very short novel that has undergone some pretty radical changes. I think that's probably all I want to say about it right now. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a quiet, small, short novel about two women. And the copyright, like I like, I like writing professionally. So what Wes is alluding to is that since leaving teaching, I, I work as a freelance writer, Yes. which, you know, I kind of have started thinking of as like going to the gym for sentences, you know, like it's a chance to write for a totally different audience and for a totally different purpose than I've ever written before. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding it to be really, really, um, really healthy for my overall writing practice. I, again, really lucked into a particularly good first client who has enough work for me and pays me a good hourly wage that I don't resent the work. It doesn't get in the way of the other stuff I want to do. It's been so far a really good bridge from mm -hmm. being a teacher. And I would, I would hope that I can continue doing it in the future. Like I would like to have more clients. Yep. Um, the hard thing is that no one in skateboarding has any money. You know, the industry is in a really tough place and they don't, you know, they ba barely have money for people who work their w warehouses. So they don't have a lot of money for like interesting, sharp, cutting edge <laughs> copy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, it's going to take some work, but I would, I would, I would like to try being a freelancer for a while and, and try doing different kinds of writing. So I'm enjoying it a lot. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, props to Wes, by the way, Wes has been working on kickflip no slides for basically forever. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's been like getting them. He's been like nibbling at them for a while. And I'm, it's, it's really fun to watch. The Wes was, Wes gave this book a chance when a lot of people wouldn't have. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm also really grateful to Wes for believing in the vision of the book and, and spending the time with me to make it into a book. So shouts to Wes Miller, who incidentally is a freelance editor now. So if anyone is looking for hiring an editor, he's a really wonderful editor. Mm. Wes Miller.
I didn't know you were uh, doing copywriting these days. And I think that's also what Eric Swisher does, I believe, professionally. That makes sense. Yeah. Are there other like kind of famous people in skating like him, like you, that are copywriters and do other kinds of works around skating? Are there other I don't know. I over? mean... You know, I mean, the, and again, I, I hope I'm not blowing him out too much either, but um, the person who I'm really grateful to for helping me get my foot in the door is Anthony Papalardo, oh, yeah. the, the writer Anthony Papalardo, yeah, yeah, yeah. who handles a, a lot of, you know, anything you read from what maybe might be the two biggest footwear brands, you know, he has his hand in, you know, he's really exceptionally good at getting words onto websites, um, you know, which also he's been making zines his whole life. And so there's, there's some Something, there's something of a continuum. You know, I mean, for me, copywriting just always seemed like a thing that you did. Like you had to, you had to have some sort of system in place in order to do it. Mm -hmm. And again, I think like the question about finding an audience, I think it's really just about finding your opportunity. And again, the sort of common thread for me is I was very fortunate to know a person who could kind of help me get in. And so, yeah, shouts to Anthony. And fuck, I mean, Eric Swisher, Chromeball Eric um, is just... You couldn't be as good as he is at what he does and not also be very good at giving sentences to people that they need. You know, yeah. like, I mean, what you're doing when you're copywriting is you're either giving the people exactly what they want for, but really primarily what you're doing is you're giving them language that they didn't even know they wanted, right? You're mm. giving them not something better than what they asked for, but something more yeah. the thing they asked for than what they asked for. And I think Eric's curiosity and Eric's research, all of that, I just imagine he's very, very very good at it yeah for sure i feel like he's a, a very interesting character in, in skateboarding media and culture and yeah 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 probably the best interviewer i don't know if it's the best but like he's one of the most reviewed. i think he's the i think he's the benchmark i think yeah. i don't think there's any chrome ball incident interview that i've ever gotten to the end of and been like oh that that was, that was a real time. piece of shit <laughs> yeah like, no no like all of them and you know particularly i think the one that stands out to me the most is the max schaff interview um and that might have been because i read it like i i woke up in oakland and like was under a i was on someone's couch i was on ted barrow's couch okay. under a window and i read the the max schaff chrome ball and it's all about oakland it's all about the east bay it's all about his relationship with phelps um you know like i think eric's really good at sort of sneakily being being very personal you know like yeah. and i don't know if this is later chrome ball incidents or if they you know if this is like a trajectory but i feel like the ones that are really incredible are the ones where he really gets into like the matters of personal like what what's it like having jake phelps be a kind of father figure what the fuck is that like mm. and you know i you know getting into the the dynamics of oakland the dynamics of economic disparity the dynamics of you know gentrification like mm. what eric does with these interviews that are ostensibly about skateboarding i think is a real model to any of us who want skateboarding to be more than it is or know know that skateboarding is more than it is all right let's do the next one Good morning to my friend Kyle Beachy from Maine. My question for you is, what have you been making lately with your hands? Are you crafting? Are you fashioning? Are you whittling? Are you cooking? Did you hear I'm that totally okay? Gonna, I'm, yeah, I heard that great. I'm totally going to cry. I, uh. Jane Porsche uh, is the reason I, I know my wife. Um, she's also the, the person who officiated our wedding. Oh, um, wow. And awesome. 
one of the challenges of living in Chicago is that uh, people leave Chicago, you know, like mm. people, I guess people all leave New York and a yeah. lot of people end up leaving LA, but like people leave Chicago to go to New York or go to LA and then they leave those places. Um, people for a while were leaving Chicago and all moving to fucking Portland, Oregon. <laughs> um, so one of the things that's hard about leaving, living in Chicago is that the people who you associate with the place are constantly leaving. And at one, when Janie Porsche, who asked this question, moved to Maine, it was a real blow. Mm. It was really, really hard because she's just one of the best people in the world. Anyway, Janie's question. I think the main thing I've been making with my hand is fires. So we have a fireplace in this house and it's a Kiva, which means it's a particular kind of fireplace, which is in a corner. Yeah. Um, and in order to light the fires, they're narrow and they're a small space. So it's it's like a vertical fire. You, you lean things against the wall rather than building a sort of square or whatever. Sure. Um, so I've been really settling into the self-monitored and self adjudicated art of making fires in this fireplace which also awesome. means that like when i go out to the property that we own here i'll like collect a bunch of you know dead juniper or dead pinion pine and throw it in the truck and it's now kindling so mm-hmm. with my hands that's the main thing i'm doing um <laughs> yeah the other thing i'd add is that we're like preparing to build a house so we're also doing a lot of sketches and like thinking through how the house will look mm. Oh, that's great. You've, you're, you at some point you have to tell me how you've gotten a hold of all these people. I would imagine it's through my wife, but yes, yes. Uh, this is, yeah, <laughs> these are um, great questions. Thank you. All right. So let's do this next one. Hey, Kyle, big fan. I just have one question with a lot of setup. The longer we stay in skating, the more we see spots come and go. That includes many of our go-to meetups from childhood and other dope different phases of our life. One day, Borough Hall will be gone. I know. When we think back to all the spots we miss, what is that prevailing emotion? Is it the loss of the spot and the potential moves and sessions that could have happened? Or is it the more common issue of just missing the past, of being younger, having more energy and excitement with the rosy tint that memory tends to grant? If that made any sense, please elaborate. If it didn't, well, just give me a nice skip. I respect you either way. Thank you. I'm a big fan always. Um, that's Ted Schmitz, yeah? Yes. Oh, what a guy. What an asset. What, what Skateboarding is better with Ted in it. Um, sure. I think it's a really good question. I think that the second answer is probably the most likely one, right? I mean, we memories are place-based. Memories are embodied. Mm. I, at least my memories. The memories that I hold on to are ones that uh, involve my body being in a particular shape or moving in a particular way or being among other bodies in a particular you know time um, with a particular energy between us, right? And so like when we say we're going to miss Borough Hall, God forbid. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Captain School in St. Louis, Missouri, which was a schoolyard, a blacktop schoolyard with a bank up to this brick wall and there were these ledges it was it was a rad suburban st louis spot mm-hmm. and like what i miss with that being gone is partially what the second half there which is about rose-colored glasses and and just the sort of acquired glow that memories have that they just sort of achieve you know that mm-hmm. that as we all know can be very dangerous to forget what things were really like because of that glow but i do think there is something about 
I think shapes are really important. You know, like I, I really believe that the shape of Borough Hall and which for people who haven't been there, it's like this, it's a government building with these large stairs out front and these columns, you know, it's, it's just a typical kind of government building, but the ground is wonderful. The ground is granite. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's the stairway and you can skate the bottom stairs, but most of what it is, is just like open, you know, the best skate spots that I've ever experienced are mainly just open. Mm. Um, But what makes Borough Hall cool is that in that openness, there's like this grate, which is, you know, nothing except this sort of just visual cue. Like, I don't even know if you rolled over it, if it would really stop you, but you treat it like a gap. And then there's this large kind of central, like, I don't know if it's like a rotunda or what, but there's like a single curb mm-hmm. and this big kind of option to hit that curb in all these ways. And it's circular. So you can skate the far side or the near side and there's a fence. And I do believe that there is, there is something about the particular experience of being within particularly shaped places. And I mm. think those of us who spend hours and hours and hours in those shapes, you know, like, space isn't just emptiness what space is is the edges the borders the various kind of shapes that take up the middle of what we think of as the space but it's also the energies of that space like space itself is created by human beings who are there and what's incredible about borough hall is it's always crowded Mm. there are always there it's always just foot traffic right there are all these subway stations there it's just like a major thoroughfare so you're always avoiding people Mm -hmm. So I think what would be lost if Borough Hall is gone is the particular interaction and the particular conversation that all of these bodies have, the rhythms of it, the sort of temporal kind of pulse of what it is to be there, which I don't think is exactly like any other spot. You know, I mean, when people wax nostalgically about Embarcadero, like they're not talking about the bricks per se, but you couldn't have it without the bricks. Yeah. You know, you couldn't have it without the sea ledge. You couldn't have it without the six stairs that we call the seven for some reason you know you couldn't Mm -hmm. have it without all these things but primarily what you couldn't have it without is the people is the the and not just like friendship i'm not talking about just like oh all my homies are there Mm. but really just like to be a body to be a person among these kinds of persons these other people it creates a sense impression in us Mm -hmm. um and you know for some of us that we chase that by like going to concerts some of us really love being in crowds i don't love being in crowds i do love though standing with eight other guys trying to skate the two sewer caps that are in the middle of the flat ground of borough hall while all of these new yorkers are walking by variously amused or annoyed by us (laughs) that is a sort of rhythm that i would take you know that i will never forget Mm. standing there with these guys i don't really know that much these new yorkers and like taking turns going at these two manhole covers (laughs) um and but but again it's like it's not the friendship exactly i'm talking about it's not the the manhole covers exactly but it's this embodied kind of rhythm the song of it yeah yeah yeah. interesting so i think that's you know that's what we lose what we lose is that particular experience okay thanks ted let's see let's do the next one hey kyle it's your personal wife Kristen. i was just wondering how would you describe your relationship to the earth these days i love you um on that notion of shapeness, it occurred to me recently like that what hell is, like hell is a, a vast flat expanse with no defining terrain. 
Like that to me is actually probably my closest vision of hell that I can think of. You're just standing there and there's nothing. Mm. I find that living in the American Southwest is a very different experience than living in the city of Chicago. And for, you know, it's we've been out here for seven months. And yep. what drew me out here is also the thing that probably is the best answer for this is that like what is stunning about this place is that you have a sense of depth and depth is different than distance, right? Like distance is a measurement. Depth, though, means that there are there are ways to notice that distance. So when I, if I were to get up on our roof now of our one story Pueblo style house Mm -hmm. and look out, what I would be able to count really are like seven different levels of depth, right? Mm -hmm. There'd be like the neighborhood, there'd be the town of Santa Fe beyond it. Then there would be these different sort of hillsides. And, you know, this is what makes like mountains in the distance be a different color than those closest to us. Like that's depth. Yeah. And so what I'm really settling into to answer my personal wife, Kristen, (laughs) who I love's question is that like what I'm feeling out here is a sense of scale and scope and depth in ways that I really haven't before. Um, Mm. I miss Chicago so much. Like it chews at my gut. I feel the pain of missing Chicago. I know that once we started coming out here, going back to Chicago is very hard because what you see everywhere around you are, you know, trees, which is great, but also a whole lot of buildings and a whole lot of gray and a whole lot of buildings stretching for many, many miles into suburbs. And then, you know, the sky sort of turning into whatever the sky is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is all just to say, like, if what skateboarding is, is a relationship to space or it's a spatial practice, um, Skateboarding in the desert has proven to be a radically different thing. I went down to Albuquerque yesterday and got to skate the Indian school ditch, which is unlike anything I've ever skated. It's just this incredibly long ditch. It's just a ditch. But, you know, your sense of it when you're in it, the mountains behind you, the, the depth that spreads for hundreds of miles as you stand at the top of this ditch and look down it and see the desert that feels older than the rest of the world is just strange forever mm. um you know if we're going to say a spot brings a certain energies i think we have to also agree that geological differences bring different energies too sure. and so what i feel like i'm doing is just like exploring exploring a lot more of what it means to be in the mountains be in the desert be away from for the most part good pavement which is hard like oh yeah, yeah. you know the the roads out here are very shitty like yeah. you see a lot of things in the in these towns that you're like particularly santa fe where you're like oh that's a spot it's not it's not a spot <laughs> at all yeah but thankfully albuquerque has a lot more i mean albuquerque rules that's something toy machine is known forever albuquerque is an incredible city for skating yeah so do you get to skate as much as you used to uh in this new environment or do you feel like you're skating maybe a bit less or well i'm skating a lot less because i don't like it as much like i don't like going to parks i don't like going to the parks that santa fe has here I, i will do it it's where i'll do skating but you know my favorite thing in chicago was walking out my front door and doing a few laps around the neighborhood and that could mean like skating the parking lot that turned your wheels black and was mm-hmm. under the train tracks and was really bad for your hearing and but you know it had these parking blocks like what i miss is the immediacy of walking out the door and putting down a board i 
hate getting in a car and driving to go yeah. skate. I yeah. hate it. I hate mm-hmm. it. And I've mitigated that a little by getting an e-bike here so I can, you know, at least have a little healthier of an adventure. Sure. But, yeah. you know, what what I miss is, you know, you go visit Copenhagen and you, wherever you are, you, you're there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, New York. I mean, all of my best skating experiences have been where we walk out of the door and we're, we're doing the thing. I don't like the lead up. I would never, I would never be able to stomach the Los Angeles kind of rhythm of it or Long oh, yeah. Beach, you know, any yeah. of that stuff. Mm. But I am, I, I will say that I, you know, also I've been here long enough. I've been here seven months now where I've begun having like a cr- local crew. Like I've yep. met a few guys here who I really like skating with. And I can't stress enough that Noah, who runs a shop called Filter mm-hmm. in Albuquerque, I've, I've lucked into meeting him and he's just a great dude. And he's just part of a really, really good scene of Albuquerque skaters. And I'm really excited to be closer to that city and, and get to know those guys more because they've just been, I mean, the hospitality has just been insane. Like mm. people, it's scary. It's scary to leave a city full of the people you think of as your skate friends. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I had the guys I skated with in Chicago, the people I skated with in Chicago, I will remain in my head the some of the just best people. They're incredible. You know, Dan being one of them. Mm-hmm. Who asked yep. that question earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uprise. I think Uprise is the best skate shop in, in America. I think it's not even close. Like, I think it's the best scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that it took me 20 years to get all the way into that. And so it, it's it's hard. It's hard to leave. Yeah, I'm sure. And I think, you know, I think we all sort of feel that in a certain way. It's a weird time in the U.S. for young people, right? Like, you know, rents in certain cities are, unfa- oh, yeah. you know, yeah. untenable. You cannot. It's very hard to live in a lot of American cities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impossible to buy a home for a lot of young people. Yeah. And so there's a real there's a whole lot of upheaval. But I don't know what that means in terms of migration, in terms of people leaving cities or, or what. But I, I would imagine that a big part of what the questions are now are about like well who do we skate with and you know one of the great things is you can find people easily if you're tapped in you know um it's hard it's hard as a middle-aged dude to settle into a new place and just trust that you're going to find new skate friends um and Mm -hmm. it it takes time sure um so i'm I'm happy for it to be happening Mm -hmm. now you mentioned uh, in the book, uh, I think towards the end, you mentioned that at some point you were, I don't know how seriously you were thinking about this, but uh, contemplating moving to Malmö in Sweden. Yeah. Or, I mean, or who maybe, wouldn't? maybe it was Copenhagen or I, I think it was probably Copenhagen. I think what I said is I'll, I'll move to Copenhagen. Yeah. I, you know, I've had, I've had a couple very formative experiences in Denmark. Um, two of them have been, had nothing to do with skating, have just been about um, writing retreats in, in the far North, in the kind of um, much more rural part of Northern Denmark, okay. um, which is beautiful. And I've gotten a great deal of work done there, but yeah, I mean, I think anyone who has spent any time during the summer in Copenhagen wants to live there. I, I don't know how you couldn't, I don't, don't know yeah. like what sort of person would be like Ugh, not for me <laughs> yeah you know so yeah i mean if if there's a radical change you know for in the book it was that i didn't know that i was going to stay married you know yes. we didn't know that we would remain a couple yep. and so when you find yourself in those sort of tumultuous like upheavals of oh everything i've assumed might not be true you start thinking like well you know one of the comforts of that is like oh well what about the possibilities i haven't considered mm. and one of those was 
was like, well, if I'm not married, then I could just move to Denmark. Fuck it. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I probably would have, but you know, I mean, there is, there is something there. I think of the value of facing loss is that, you know, what can come of it are sort of radical shifts in what might be possible. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the sort of utopic ideas living in Copenhagen or living in Malmo, either way, mm-hmm. and just going back and forth, you know, getting to know John and those guys at Brigeria. It's yep. like, yeah, it's just such an open armed, wonderful set of really generous and inspiring people doing yeah. cool shit. And fuck man, Cope, like skating Copenhagen is a dream. It's a dream. It's, yeah. it's great spots. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I did an interview with um, Jesus Fernandez recently, uh, yeah. who lives there, and uh, he's from Madrid, so completely different environment. Yeah, and he, I think he moved to Copenhagen because his wife is from there, and he's adjusting to it. But it, it's taken a lot of effort, and especially during the winter because it's such a harsh <laughs> winter compared to especially to Spain. Yeah, uh, so it, for him it was quite hard, and I think it still is a bit hard to a degree today. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, no Copenhagen in the summer is. Uh, incredible for sure yeah i mean it's like chicago in that way in that like there are two very different places Mm -hmm. but what it leads to is that when it is summer like there's like this multiplier where it's not just that it's pretty out and like the days last forever and everyone feels good it's also that everyone is like super fucking happy because they've made it through the winter and that's Mm -hmm. a thing that i think people who don't live with seasons don't totally understand is the like communal joy like that energy like i remember walking down the street in chicago in the springtime when it's finally spring and like people are out front grilling food and like suddenly friendly yeah you know like mm-hmm. suddenly strangers like we we've all been through this thing together and it does it feels communal and it's tough for a city's that big to feel like communities but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know the shared suffering of winter will do it all right this one is from jim daly yeah a chicago friend of yours and a journalist i believe he is so he said what lessons you've learned from skating apply to being sunnies or any dogs human and vice versa (laughs) so sunny is your, your dog right yeah, Sonny's my yeah, Sonny is our dog. He's a maniac. He's three years old. He's wonderful. Um, well, I think one of the answers there is about loss, right? Like one of the answers is that you're doing this thing you know can't last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs are time bombs. You know, there's built in there will be heartbreak. Yeah, right. You come into contact with this creature and you care for this creature, and this creature looks at you with just utter love and devotion, and comes to you while you're sad, feels senses your heart rate rising, and comes over to see if you're okay. Yeah. And you know always in the back of your head that it's going to end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a certain sense, I think skateboarding and dogs are like potentially really good rehearsal for the reality of what it is to be a mortal creature on the planet. Beyond that, I think just taking breaks, you know, I think skateboarding for a lot of us is the sort of thing that isn't work or thing that isn't the rest of life. Um, And one thing that a dog requires you to do is like get up from the desk, like walk the dog, take the dog out. And so it changes time. You know, I think both skateboarding and committed pet relationships you know a turtle doesn't do this probably and <laughs> fish don't do yeah. this but like you know you've you owe this creature something mm-hmm. and also just like it can be purely recreational you know i mean aside from a 
aside from getting sick, our dog ate some rat poison the other day, so we had to deal with that. Oh, My shit. sister's dog has a habit of swallowing towels, you know, balled up like okay. hand towels, and that they get like wrapped in the dog's intestine. And like, oh. aside from those sort of things, this is a ridiculous thing to say, but a dog isn't a human, you know, like yeah. <laughs> you owe a dog, you're in charge of a dog, but the relationship has a real limit on how far it can go. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's that's maybe the case also with skateboarding. Like no matter what it is and no matter how much we care about it, like it's it's really an avenue into ourselves and like friendship, but it's not skateboarding's not a person. A dog's mm-hmm. not a person and skateboarding isn't a person. And I think having those sort of relationships that aren't peer based is is important. I think it like that question about what is nonfiction taught you, like you learn about the other thing by way of what it isn't. Okay, I have just three last ones, but we can Great. go through them Let's quickly. All right. Kyle Beachy, your, um, well, let's face it, obnoxious question that you sent to me for my Beyond the Boards episode plunged me into a cloud of incoherent, stuttering rage from which I probably haven't yet emerged. I'm still talking about it now, months later. Maybe I'm still <laughs> pissed. You know, questions don't have to be epistemic pissing contests. They can just be friendly little prompts. How was your day? What pants are those? Stuff like that. We do not have to mark our territories with separate puddles. Instead, we can try to fuse our golden streams, make eye contact even, sharing supportive glances. And so it's in this spirit of fusion and harmony and greater understanding that I ask you, what's up with benches? You found any good ones in Santa Fe? Small pockets of benevolent abyss beneath enchanting southwestern sunsets, or are you just over it? I guess what I'm getting at, what this stream of piss is ultimately directed towards, is meaning. Are you still searching for meaning in skateboarding, or is your stream leading to other puddles? Sorry for the lame (laughs) question or whatever. I will take my answer online, please, sir. Uh, I, I just want to make clear that the question to which Ted is referring there was, has your immense skill as an analytical, critical thinker, has that ever failed you? Like, what is a time when you've been overwhelmed by beauty? Which, yeah. you know, I understand is a terrible question to ask someone who who thinks of art as seriously as Ted does. But really what I wanted to ask is essentially what Ted is asking me, which is like, where do you find beauty mm-hmm. right now? I would say uh, uh, thank you, Ted, for that question. I I fucking love Ted Barrow. Um, <laughs> also, I'm sorry for all the cussing this. Oh, good. Morning. Um, no worries. No bench. I mean, Santa Fe is not a bench town. There's not a good bench to be found here. There are no benches. I have no benches that I skate here. What I have found are some expanses. I found some parking blocks for slappies, which I know Ted can appreciate. But I think what's what's really promising and really exciting are the sort of changes in grade. You know, we were speaking of Indian School Ditch the other day. Like mm-hmm. there are just there are some really weird angles created out here. You know, I mean, a lot of this has to do with water management of course mm. but also there are you know adobe mud walls plaster walls are are not rectilinear you know they're sort of muddy they round at the edge and so it's interesting to think about skate it's like sort of skating in a marshmallow field you know you like <laughs> the corners that you count on the corners that are that define a city the sort of rigid lines those sort of things are pretty much out and so what you find um your eye doing is rounding a lot of edges um mm. and so you know visually 
the skateboarding activity is very different. Perceptually, it's really different. You're not looking for, you know, Ted's, Ted's sort of specialty is brutalism and skateboarding. There's no brutalism out here. There's, you know, far more kind of organic shapes. And the question is like, well, what, what can you skate in these organic shapes? Mm-hmm. And again, I would say that Santa Fe is not super good for it. Northern New Mexico is not super good for that. Southern New Mexico is like Taos. I'm sorry. Uh, Albuquerque has a lot of skating. Yeah. I, I look forward to my in-laws live in Las Cruces, mm-hmm. um, which is not too far from the Texas border. And so I'm interested in, in finding stuff out there. But no, I, it, it doesn't mean that I'm not finding meaning anymore in benches or piss for that matter. But <laughs> um, it is a different kind of search. Um, and it's it's required a sort of re- redefining of what, what skateboarding is, which I think is the best you can do. Like, you know, the reason we all skate curbs at age 40 isn't just because we can't ollie anymore. Mm-hmm. It's also because you you start like you start noticing things on the ground like i don't know where the cause and effect line is there but definitely part of what happens is you start seeing things differently you yeah know, which is the big the big trope of all this um mm-hmm. you see things differently and it's not just about ability it's about sort of what you want what you're looking for um later in life mm. thank you ted okay then i have a question from your parents uh <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the first. I, I don't think I've ever had questions from a guest's parents. So, <laughs> honored. incredible. Thank you very much, Terry and Roger, for sending in a question for you. <laughs> I believe it's your mom that wrote it. So she said, hey, Kyle, it's your mom and dad here. <laughs> Thanking you for being a skateboarder most of your life and what it's added to our lives. It's been great experiencing this world through you. A question about the places you've skated. Thinking of when we saw that ragtag skating spot you used under King's Highway mm. in St. Louis. Yeah. Are there spots you've skated that leave you with really fond memories or stand out in your mind for other reasons? And secondly, is there a spot that you're yet hoping to skate? Great question, Terry. So I there was a spot in St. Louis very famously that was informally called Shitside, right? Which is you <laughs> Oh, know, I think of you course, mentioned it in the book, yeah. Yeah, um, it's a play on Portland's Burnside. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, St. Louis is a tough city to skate also. It's, it's you know, it's a lot of, it's Rust Belt, Middle America. Like the concrete is really knotty. There's a lot of very black asphalt, you know, that stuff that turns your wheels black and is really hot in the summer. Mm. Um, St. Louis is a tough city to skate, which, you know, can be made really beautiful. So there's this DIY spot under this bridge. And like any spot under a bridge, it was just grimy and mm. unpleasant in some key ways. And a lot of it's character was based on how unpleasant it was and it was called shit side and i remember driving <laughs> my mom down there once i was like driving through the hometown i thought hey you know what's that da- you have no idea this is down here let me show you this sort of secret reality of the place that you live all the time yeah, like here's yeah. a thing you don't know exists yeah on the way to the botanical garden um <laughs> So what are our questions? Which stand out and what yeah. would I like to skate? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, MacBo stands out. I was just talking to a, a new buddy of mine out here named Jason, and he, we were speaking of our trips to Barcelona, and we were just speaking of MacBo as a very, a really unique sort of place. I mean, obviously, it's incredible for skating, but, you know, a lot of the joy of MacBo is if you're up top and you just sit along that wall and, you know... <laughs> People are good. People can be good. It really affirms your sense in humanity. I was there in, I guess it was 2000, it would have been early 2003. So I got to sit in, at MACBA and watch Bastian Salabanzi just do laps oh, nice. through the place. And, you know, like, you know, like endless strings of tricks. Yeah, um, he was good at that. I mean, he's still good, but... Uh, he's still good, but he was really Bastion on one at that uh, point. Yeah. He, was, he was in a level. Yeah. And also, like, someone was filming him, like, sniping footage of him, and he eventually had beef 
beef with it and eventually like shot his board out at after asking him several times like hey man don't do that oh, yeah, yeah. um okay. and so it was like it was like a real introduction not only to the place and the reality of what a pro skater can do on a skateboard but also like hey there is etiquette there are codes yeah, to yeah. best practices and good behavior sure. um a place i would really love to skate oh man I don't know. I've been really, I've been really fortunate. I know that I, when I walked through Athens, incidentally with my parents in their 50th wedding anniversary, I remember looking around Athens and being like, I cannot believe that I don't have a skateboard right now. Like Mm -hmm. Athens seems like a real, a really incredible place. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that might be my answer. I've also never skated Las Vegas and like, you know, I remember going for the first time to Caesar's palace, which is, you know, one of the casinos right there on the strip. And Mm -hmm. there, it had that double set of stairs with these gold rails and I don't know, I can't remember who my formative image of like, you know, ollieing down to lip sliding the second rail. And I just remember thinking like, oh man, this, this city, like the strip would be incredible to skate. Yeah. So yeah, that's my answer is Las Vegas and Athens. Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> Great questions, mom. Yeah, Kill yeah, it. yeah. She nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crushed it. Okay. Let's do our very last one. Oh my God. Hey, Kyle. Hope the interview is going well. Uh, as a teacher, one of my main objectives is to get skaters to read, not only to understand the letters and to find information and read instructions, but actually read to feed the brain and to fill the soul. My question for you is, how did you become a reader? And what do you think are maybe one, two or three books that a skater or young person should read that could open the door into the world of literature thank you and hope to see you soon bye did you recognize uh, john that was yeah it's yeah. john huh from Brigger john Dalquist, yes yeah what a heroic dude what a thing he has built yes and certainly not alone but no, what no, for what sure. an exceptional what an exceptional legacy of building that school yeah. not to mention the rippers who have come out of that school um that's a really good question i i share john's i don't know if it was concern we heard but i, I share john's sense of the challenge of helping people who are, have grown up in the world that exists now find reading find the joy in reading which in some ways is like the very opposite of what our contemporary world is like constantly asking us to do you know like what we're asked to do is absorb information quickly Mm. channel that information with other information that we have and come up with some sort of synthesis of understanding of the world or like more often making a joke about the world you know like really what is successful these days is understanding enough that you can kind of quip you know, mm-hmm. that we live in this world of immediate, constant streaming entertainment and content while we also deal with this very harsh reality that we sense apocalypse coming. You know, mm. we sense that we've destroyed the world. We sense that capitalism has brought us to a point that we are near some kind of break, right? Yeah. So where does reading fit into that? And that's a it's a hard sell. It's yeah. it's it's a hard sell for young people. Um, because what reading is is like it is labor. You know, it's yeah. hard. It's it is work. Like skateboarding is work, mm-hmm. right? Like it it takes work to learn how to kickflip. It takes work to continue getting out of bed and stretching when you're 45 years old and wanting to skateboard. Like these things are labor. Reading is a similar labor. But mm-hmm. that's not what he asked. What he asked was how I came to reading. I was yep. I'm a slow reader. Um, I'm a really slow reader. I didn't become a self 
driven reader until after college. Mm -hmm. I was the person in college who would read what I needed to read to write the paper. And then I sort of uh, found reading slowly since then. And this has been like a 20 year journey and I look forward to it every day. My relationship with reading as a practice gets richer and richer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the key is to understand that reading is creativity. The guy I mentioned yesterday talking about Macbeth, Jason, we were in the car driving between here and Albuquerque and he asked about poetry and mm-hmm. you know the the great crime i think of the way we teach poetry is starting with interpretation is starting with the idea that there is a meaning that we have to somehow decode or mm-hmm. find within a poem when in fact what a poem is is an experience it's a unique brief experience with sound language and image that's it mm-hmm. it's it's like listening to a song you know no one yeah. no one's going to put on the beatles and be like okay now write five pages about what help is about you know like please please me like what could that mean you know it's like no what we're doing is we're reveling in the in the experience of being exposed to these words in this order with these kind of images and it moves us in this particular way and then we're on to this other thing that's what a fucking poem is um and that i think is maybe the key to understanding for me like what reading is as well reading is a creative act reading is a thing that i don't do without a pen and paper nearby reading is what fills in for me my real dearth and lack of creativity Mm -hmm. it's stimulus it's not (laughs) it's not a task it's a stimulus it's like you know it's like it's like eating a meal it's like going for a walk it's a it is a thing that we can think of as work and once we do we don't want to do it you know there are Mm -hmm. times i hate eating because i'm like oh i'm doing this thing i don't want to have to stop for lunch or like oh man i've i've had such a good day i don't want to stretch before i go to bed Mm -hmm. um so you can see the same thing very differently obviously and i think a lot of what reading is is coming to understand that it's there for you that's it that's all it is there's no test there's no like pass fail there's no did you get it Mm -hmm. that's out like what what it is is what do you what do you get what do you get from this what does it do what does it make you think of what does it make you smell what does it remind you of that's what reading should be um as far as three books that do that. I mean, I think the very short collection of stories by the American author and genius poet, Dennis Johnson, um, mm-hmm. Jesus's son, it's called Jesus son, Jesus with an apostrophe. Right. Yeah. It's a line from that Lou Reed song. Heroin oh, okay. is the title. Um, and it's about a heroin addict mm-hmm. um, who is not named in the book. His, his character's name is fuckhead. Cause he's just such <laughs> a miserable, miserable person. Um, okay. But it's, it's like really secretly a short, short, sharp, poetic kind of redemption story. And I think there's a lot in there. It's also just linguistically beautiful. So I would say Jesus Son by Dennis Johnson. I would say, particularly for skaters, I would say any of the writing of Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard is a nature writer, technically, mm-hmm. who, like any nature writer, eventually verges into transcendentalism. You know, you can't think about the natural world too long before you start finding spirit in that world. Yeah, And she won the Pulitzer for her first book, which is called A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. But it's her second book that's a little weirder. It's a little smaller and it gets a little stranger. It's called Teaching a Stone How to Talk or maybe just Teaching a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. Strange book. Um, (laughs) And then a third book. I mean, I don't know, man. Um, The Most Fun Thing by Kyle Beachy. The Most Fun Thing by (laughs) Kyle Beachy. No, you don't want to do that. Save that one for later. Yeah, that's that's really hard. I mean, I, I'm tempted to go with one of my one of my favorites. Um, 
But I don't know. No, I'm not going to answer a third one. I'm going to say okay, that the yeah. third one is the book that the person closest to you recommends. Like I mm. think having, I mean, the whole, the beauty of this question is that someone recommending a book is part of what literature is. And it's yeah. like, you know, it's the practice of it. It's like someone watching you skateboard, like you need the other person. Mm. Um, reading doesn't have to be a solitary act. So I would say the third book I would recommend is the book that the person who you happen to be in touch with might recommend to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's cheating, but it's a good question, John. Well, yeah, let, let's wrap it up here. We could, uh, I feel like we, we could talk, we could we go could talk on. forever, but <laughs> we've been yeah, talking no, for we long enough. And, yeah, no, we probably shouldn't. Yeah, we probably, we probably should wrap this up. Um, but Quinn, thank you Quinn, so much. I, I, know, I know we weren't recording at the beginning, but I yep. do want to reiterate what I, what I said. And you, of course, are, I would guess, based on my sense of you as a humble person, you're probably going to want to erase this. But I would urge you to not, which is just on behalf of the skateboarding community, I would like to really thank you for all of the work that you do. These are valuable conversations. And the fact that you bring people like me on, you bring people like Saunders on, like Indigo yep. on, the fact that you are spreading this project among legends, like legitimate people who all of us are fans of, and then people who are really just in here because we've, by the good graces, like found an avenue to do our work in skateboarding. It's really incredible. And I, I just very grateful for all that you do. So thank you on behalf of a lot of us. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for the kind words and thank you for taking the time to chat with me hell yeah no it's been a joy man thank you thank you very much that's it for my conversation with kyle follow him on instagram at the most fun thing get a copy of his latest book the most fun thing wherever you order your books and listen to him and his friends on the vent city podcast thank you for tuning in see you soon for a new episode of beyond Boys.